Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> it's good to see you this morning. I hope you'll be back this afternoon at 5. Um, <clears throat> we will have our monthly Q&A night uh, this evening. Uh, I have one question, two questions total. One is one we didn't get to last week because one of my answers sort of swelled in length. And then another one is a question on the subject of witchcraft. So come back this evening. You might find that interesting. You might learn something. I certainly have uh, preparing for it. To begin this morning, Matthew 22 and verse 34. Matthew 22 and verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Here's the question. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I believe this little passage reveals two important things. Number one, it reveals a basic human tendency, a basic attitude people have. And number two, it reveals something of God's expectations of his people, which confounds that human attitude. The human tendency is to, is to insist on trying to draw the bottom line, to always try to draw the bottom line, to say, all right, let's take out all the fluff. Let's not have a long, nuanced conversation about anything. Just tell me, how much will it cost? How long do I have? How much? How many? How often? Just give me the bottom line. What's the least I'll have to pay? The Pharisee lawyer who's testing Jesus has a sort of bottom line question. All right, we could talk about God and the law all day long. Let's just get down to it. What do you think the greatest commandment is? Of all the commandments, just go ahead and tell me the most important one, the one we just have to do. Well, Jesus' answer reveals that God is of a different mind than that. Instead of listing one of the Ten Commandments which would then give the Pharisee an opportunity to say, well, what about these other nine? Or what about all these other commandments? Jesus answers with two commands whose bottom lines can never be found. There is no bottom line on this command. How do you draw a line on? How do you quantify? How do you do the bare minimum in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind? Heart, soul, and mind. How do you do the bare minimum in loving your neighbor as yourself? Jesus says in verse 40, from these two commands flow all the rest of God's will. In other words, he says there, there kind of is no greatest commandment. There, there are these which entail all the other ones too. See, I think it's our tendency to do as the Pharisee did, to try to just always kind of cut to the chase. You know, I, I'm a bottom line kind of guy in, in many areas of life. I bet you are too. For example, you know, when tax time rolls around, I'm really not that interested in my in accountant informing, informingly on all the uh, intricacies of the tax law and all of that. Uh, it's not really my thing. I just kind of want the bottom line. How much do I owe? How do I stay on the good side of the IRS? Let's just get to that. Tell me what I got to do, and then I'll be on my way. See, but in spiritual things, this bottom line attitude comes out in a very, very disturbing way, I think. Lord, what do I have to do? Sometimes it's phrased this way. Is this a salvation issue? Which is a way of saying, is this something we actually have to care about or not? Is this a have-to kind of thing? And sometimes it just seems like God must sort of threaten us to get us to act. We might call it shotgun religion, like a shotgun wedding. 
Does God have a shotgun pointed at my back? If so, I guess I'll do it. If not, then I'm, I'm not going to. So this morning, what I have is a single point. Last, last Sunday morning, I preached a ten-point sermon. I've got to balance it out this morning with one point. Here's my one point. How can I serve God is a better question than do I have to. The do I have to heart is not the same as the how can I serve God heart. I want to demonstrate from Scripture that the question do I have to, the sort of bottom line mindset, is something that is totally unwanted by God. And the question how can I serve God is what God is actually trying to get us to ask ourselves. We're going to look at Jesus respond to some sort of bottom line minded people. We're going to listen to Jesus preach against that sort of lowest common denominator approach to serving God. We're going to read about Christians applying this logic in extreme ways. And we're going to make applications of this single point. The do I have to heart is not the same as the how can I serve God heart. So what we have is just a few passages which illustrate my one point. So we begin with Matthew 18. Uh, Leading up to this passage in verses 15 through 20, Jesus has taught on how to handle a brother or sister who has sinned against you. And he instructs us on a process by which that is to be done, which hopefully will end in uh, the offender's repentance and a reconciliation in the relationship. If so, if this process is successful where they are alerted to their sin, we are now in a place where that reconciliation can begin and we can move on. This is Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. So after Jesus teaching on forgiveness of the one who sins against you, Peter asks a question about how often this process should be undergone, where we alert them to our sin and they repent and we forgive. How often should we go through this process before we put a stop to the forgiveness? You know, forgiveness can be taken advantage of if we keep offering it over and over over and over again. It might even be seen as a way of encouraging sin. Peter is clearly asking Jesus to quantify it for him, to give him the bottom line, to give him a number, because Peter himself suggests a number, as many as seven times. And and I think Peter has calculated this number with the idea that Jesus will be impressed with it. I'm told that the teaching of ancient rabbis was that one should offer forgiveness three times, for the same offense, after which forgiveness can be withheld. And so what Peter does is he doubles that number plus one. And in fact, he makes it the number of completion. Uh, we'll, We'll forgive this many times, seven times. The thought of forgiving one person seven times, someone who wrongs us seven times, is quite a remarkable thought. We have trouble with one time. Well, this is how Jesus responds, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times 7. So first of all, not 7 times. Maybe in the next breath, Peter expects Jesus to say, the 3 that the rabbis recommend, that's sufficient. Instead, what Jesus does is blows Peter's number out of the water. 70 times 7, that's 490. But by that, Jesus does not mean that we stop at 491. Jesus' point is that forgiveness ought to be unlimited. Forgiveness ought to be a way of life. So Jesus' math problem is an illustration of how insufficient Peter's bottom line forgiveness was. Any limit, any numerical limit we place on forgiveness is totally removed from the idea of 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 6, which is love keeps no score of wrongs. If you set a number, you're going to have to start keeping score. We're not the kind of people that keep score. And then this is how Jesus follows, verse 23. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master had ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell, fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, Jesus' parable illustrates that our forgiveness of others is always conscious of and modeled after God's forgiveness of us. That if we are in constant remembrance of how God has forgiven us, our mountain of debt, it is from that place that we find it in ourselves to forgive those who owe us a comparatively small debt. If we learn that lesson, that our forgiveness of others is patterned after God's forgiveness of us, I have to ask, where is the bottom line? What's the minimum number we have to? What's the magic number of times we ought to forgive before we stop? If we draw the line at seven, as Peter suggested, you can be sure, if we've learned from the parable, we can be sure that's exactly where God will draw the line with us. And I've got to tell you, I don't really like that line. Seven times, seven offenses before the forgiveness stops, because I think I've passed that a long time ago with God. What did Jesus do with Peter's bottom line religion? He blew it out of the water. He told Peter to change the way he viewed forgiveness altogether. The do I have to heart is not the same as the how can I serve God heart. Second story illustrating this. This is Matthew 19 and verse 16. Here's another story of Jesus being asked a question, seeking the bottom line. Matthew 19 and verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you enter life, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so here Jesus interacts with a man who in other passages is identified as the rich young ruler. And his question is, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? It's hard for me to begrudge that question. Um, And in fact, there are several things up front that speak really well of this man. Um, In the first place, he's seeking the right thing. Eternal life is what he's interested in. Frankly, I wish more people today would ask questions like these. What, what, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Also, the fact that he comes to Jesus to ask him shows that he thought Jesus knew something. In the New Testament, rulers are not known for their genuine interest in Jesus. Most are adversarial to Jesus, who view him as a threat. But this man seems to see in Jesus someone who who would know something. He, He views Jesus as someone who has authority about these questions. We also find, if we take him at his word, he is a morally good man. 
having kept all the commandments Jesus had just listed, listed here. In verse 17, Jesus says, if you would have eternal life, these commandments I've listed, keep them. Um, he, he, uh, in verse 17, he must keep the commandments. In verse 18 and 19, Jesus lists several of these commandments. Specifically, he lists the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth of the Ten Commandments. But that's not the end of the matter. This is verse 20. The young man said, all these I have kept, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, follow me. See, I think the rich young ruler seems to know he is still lacking something. And Jesus' solution to what this man was lacking, his solution to his perfection, to making him complete, without a sort of uh, glaring vice in his life, was that he must go sell all his possessions, give them to the poor, and then devote himself, as the disciples, as the apostles did, to following Jesus. So what was this man lacking? He was lacking a heart that was willing to be totally invested in God. Jesus' diagnosis is that his money and possessions had taken up too much of his heart, and the only way to fill in what was lacking was to divest himself of those things that were taking too much space. So here is a man in search of a bottom line. List for me the commandments to keep so I can ensure my salvation. But like he did with Peter, Jesus blows that bottom line question out of the water. He gives him a bottom line, all right. The bottom line is, drop everything and follow me. What I'm trying to show you is every time Jesus, someone comes to Jesus with a question along these lines, all right, Jesus, what's the bottom line? What do I just have to do? What's a salvation issue? Jesus doesn't even accept the premise. He always blows the question out of the water. He says, Peter, not seven times, 70 times seven. He says, you want to know what you need to do? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. All of it showing, I think, Jesus doesn't want this attitude, this approach to him. Do I have to, Jesus? He wants a totally different mind that says, you know what, how can I serve God? Whatever it is, I'm on board. Let me just show you how Jesus consistently drives home this idea in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses, I think, a series of sort of bottom line rules that have been taught and uh, and enforced among the Jews for years. Many of the commands Jesus mentions in Matthew 5 have their basis, a firm basis in the law of Moses. And yet what he's putting his finger on is that the rabbis had sort of found loopholes and workarounds and technicalities to skirt around the spirit of the law. Jesus takes these laws and he sort of turns them on their head. So just a few examples. Matthew 5 and verse 21 You've heard that it was said to those of old, quote, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's sort of a bottom line approach to, to uh, uh, relationships, to, to anger and hatred. And that is, okay, we'll put an upper limit on it. Don't murder him. Everything up to that is sort of implied, okay, just don't go that far. To which Jesus says, now, put the bottom line lower. I'm not just after avoiding murder. That's sort of a remedial morality. Let's go down to the root. Let's go to anger. Let's go to insults. Let's go to character assassination, and not just actual assassination. This is verse 27. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the bottom liners say, you know, the act of adultery is wrong, to which Jesus says yes, and so is lust. This is verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. This is verse 37. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so there's sort of a bottom line approach to giving your word, which is if you swear the right oath, if you say the magic words, I swear to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and so be, help me, God. If you say those magic words, then yes, you definitely have to tell the truth after that. To which Jesus says, you know what? Oaths are unnecessary if you just always tell the truth. You just have the one setting, which is I only say true things and I don't say lies. This is verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So the bottom liners say, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Sometimes we see this as sort of a, uh, a license sort of thing, that go get them. But it's actually meant to be a limit, that your vengeance on them should be limited in scope and intensity to what they've done to you. So there's the upper limit on your vengeance, to which Jesus says, no, here's the limit. Turn the other cheek. Give him the other surface for slapping after he slapped you the first time. This is verse 43. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the bottom liners sort of have a definition of love your neighbor, which, which is very narrow. Love your neighbor means love your friends. Jesus says, no, love your neighbor means love your enemies too. Over and over again, Jesus demonstrates the do I have to heart is not the same as the how can I serve God heart. He turns the sort of bottom line mindset on its head. That God is after so much more than the, the bare minimum obedience. What he's after in the Sermon on the Mount is our hearts. I want you to inhabit the mind of God. I want you to love what God loves and hate what God hates. I want you to admire what God admires. I want to get all the way down to the very bottom of your heart. This is Acts 16. Acts 16 and verse 1. I want to look at an example now of someone who I think is demonstrating this uh, spirit Jesus is after. This is a story of someone with a how can I serve God heart and not a what do I have to do sort of heart. If you're not familiar with the story, it's, uh, it might blow your mind. Acts 16 and verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So this is our first introduction to Timothy, who becomes an important person in, in Paul's life and in the New Testament. And we learn a little bit about his background, that he was from Lystra, that he had a good reputation with the brethren there, and that Paul uh, saw something in him that caused him to want to, Timothy to accompany him on his preaching journeys. We, we see that Timothy had a mixed upbringing, a Jewish believing mother, but a father who was Greek, presumably a non-believer. And so given his mixed upbringing, Timothy had not been circumcised as a baby. 
And so it's into that situation that verse 3 says that preparing to take him with him on his preaching journey, he took him and he circumcised him. Now I need to be delicate here, but I also need to accurately convey what happened. Timothy was an adult. There was no high-grade, razor-sharp, surgical steel scalpel. There was no modern-day anesthesia or painkillers. There was no sterile doctor's office. Paul took him and he circumcised him. And it would have hurt. Why did Paul do that? Why would Timothy let him do that? Because they had to do that? Because all Christian males must be circumcised? No, exactly not. In fact, Paul is the one who passionately argues that, uh, that Christians that need not um, have these tokens of the old law enforced on them, these tokens of, of the covenant that the Jews had. Read Galatians sometime. He specifically uses the example of circumcision for religious purposes as something that must never be bound on people. He himself rebukes those who tried to bind circumcision on Gentile converts. That's not why he tells Timothy to be circumcised. Why does he tell Timothy to be circumcised? It says because of the Jews who were in those places, they all knew Timothy's father was a Greek. Timothy was going to go out preaching with Paul to audiences comprised of many Jews. And Paul knew that the Jews would see an uncircumcised man and they would write him off before he opened his mouth and say, this uncircumcised man is not going to tell me anything about God. Who does he think he is? And so in order to remove that excuse from skeptical Jews, Paul took Timothy and he circumcised him. Did he have to do it? Resolutely no, he did not have to do it. Was it, a matter, was it a matter of salvation? Absolutely not. Was Timothy going to hell for not being circumcised? Absolutely not. If we bring to this passage this sort of bottom line mindset, we are going to be confounded. Timothy didn't have to undergo circumcision. He didn't have to, but for some reason he did. Very, very quickly, this is 1 Corinthians 9. I think this is the inner logic of this decision. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. <coughs> These chapters are full of this sort of thinking that we do things we don't have to. We do things because we're interested in serving God, not just interested in avoiding hell. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by, by all means I may save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, what the bottom liner goes around preaching is just verse 19, and they stop there. They say, I am free from all. I don't have to do it, and if I don't have to do it, I don't do it. I am free from all. To which Paul says, I know that. I know I'm free from a lot of these things, but you know what I do? I voluntarily make myself a servant anyway. That's what Timothy did. To the Jew, I became a Jew, that I might win some Jews. See, this is a different mindset than Peter when he's asking the question, how often must I forgive? It's different from the question of the rich young ruler who thought only in terms of sort of bottom line obedience to rules. It's different from the rabbis Jesus is confounding in Matthew 5. What was in his mind? 
What was in his mind is verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with him in its blessings. That's not the do I have to heart. That's the how can I serve God heart. One more passage and then we'll be done. Matthew 20. Go back with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. Let's try to bring all of this together. I want us to listen to the way Jesus describes how the kingdoms of the world work, how the kingdoms of the world exercise power, versus how the citizens of the kingdom of God live and how this kingdom works. Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says this here in the aftermath of uh, the mother of James and John sort of trying to vie for her sons to have these prominent positions and sort of have this wield this authority in this kingdom Jesus is bringing. And he begins to draw a contrast into what it is they think Jesus' kingdom is and what it actually is. In verse 25, he describes how the kingdoms of the world exercise power and authority. And what they do is domineer. They lord it over. They force obedience under threat of punishment. They use the power of the sword. That's the way the Roman government operated. It's the way all kingdoms of the world operate. And in a kingdom like that, the bottom line is pretty clear. If it's going to get you in trouble, you don't do it. If it's going to get you on the bad side of them, you just stay away from that. That bottom line is pretty clear. Well, this is verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It shall not be so among you, he says. Jesus says, I don't exercise the power of the sword over my people. Actually, he says, I exercise the power of the cross, in verse 28. Of coming not to be served, not to domineer and dominate, not to tell everyone, here's what you do to stay out of hell. I came to be a servant and to call call you into servitude. As Jesus did for us, we make ourselves voluntary servants of Jesus. God doesn't want us to obey simply under threat of punishment. He doesn't hold a gun to our head in order to get us to serve him. He doesn't want his people constantly searching for loopholes. He doesn't want them asking, do I have to? He wants us to ask, how can I serve? Here's really the central question I'm getting at. Does God have to threaten us to get us to act? Does he have to tell us you will go to hell if you don't in order for us to spring into action? Are we going to have the attitude of, I'm not going to do what God says unless I can be convinced salvation hangs in the balance. Otherwise, I'm sitting here with my arms crossed. See, bottom line obsessed Pharisee lawyers need that sort of motivation. But disciples, servants, don't. A disciple doesn't need a shotgun pointed at him. He doesn't need threats of hellfire in order to get him to worship, in order to get get him to to give of his time or money, in order to compel him to show mercy to someone, in order to convince him he should stay away from sin and temptation, in order to convince him he should care about someone and do something for them. A disciple first gives himself, all of himself over to Jesus, and from then on his service is only limited by his opportunity and by his ability. That's the model of the kingdom of God. Let me remind you once more of the passage we opened with, what Jesus called the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no shotgun in that verse. 
you can't find the bottom line or the bare minimum on that. How do you do the bare minimum of loving God with all of who you are? The do I have to heart is not the same as the how can I serve God heart. Brother Robert Turner wrote the following. He said, There is nothing more completely opposed to the true spirit of Christianity than the attitude back of questions like, How much? How many? How often? Must I serve the Lord? It is appalling that some would argue such. When Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, he left no place for, and quote, 10% of thy money, and quote, one hour of week for the, of thy time. See, Christians should share the gospel with other people because they love other people. And they should want to be together and to worship together and spend time together because we love each other and we love the Lord. And we should want to study. We should want to learn about God. We should want to pray and pray with others. We should want to ask and offer spiritual help because we love the Lord and serve Him and serve His people. Some of these things are, 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 are presented in the Bible as direct commands. Some of them are simply descriptions of how good Christians have done it. But the question is, will we pursue these things willfully or must God threaten us in order to get us to do what we should? I hope I've demonstrated the bottom line attitude that asks questions like, do I have to, is totally unwanted by God, and that the wholehearted disciple is the only kind of disciple who simply asks, how can I serve God? That's what God is after, and that's what Jesus models for us. Maybe there's someone here that realizes that you have approached Jesus uh, in this totally remedial way. What's the bare minimum? How can I get off, uh, get off of the, the hell sentence? How can I stay out of, stay out of hell? I hope you've seen this vision of dedicating yourself totally to him. Maybe there's someone that needs to come and to do that dedicating of themselves, to come and to put Christ on in, in baptism in the first place, or to come seek the prayers of this congregation. Whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing. I'll be back at 5 o'clock.